The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's episode of the History of Literature is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by What Have I Learned, a collection of essays by public school teachers about the wisdom they've gained from their years in the classroom. You can attend a reading from What Have I Learned on December 8th at 7.30 p.m. at the Brookline Booksmith, one of America's great independent bookstores, located just outside Boston in Coolidge Corner, Massachusetts. What Have I Learned is also available on Amazon.com, and it's a great holiday gift for the favorite teachers in your life. Yo, welcome to the show. I'm Jack Wilson. Let's start with a little Shakespeare. This is James Mason in the 1953 film Julius Caesar. He's playing Brutus. In the moments after Brutus and his co-conspirators have assassinated the great leader, Julius Caesar, now he's on the steps of the Senate, planning to face the citizens of Rome, who have gathered to find out who has dared to kill their leader and why. Countrymen, be patient till the last. Hear me for my cause and be silent that you may hear. Believe me for mine honor and have respect to mine honor that you may believe. Censure me in your wisdom and awake your senses that you may the better judge. Please, If there be any in this assembly... Any dear friend of Caesar's. To him I say that Brutus' love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? No! 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 me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. As tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. Who is here so base that will be a bondsman? If any speak for him, have I offended? Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? If any speak, for him have I offended. Who is here so vile that will not love his country? If any speak, for him have I offended. I pause for a reply. None, Brutus, none! <laughs> So good. 
So good. That's just to tee things up. We're going to have more from that play today, including more about that speech and, and the famous speech that followed Mark Antony's. Actually, I don't even like using the word speech or oration. That's what it is. The famous oration that followed, and it's delivered by Marlon Brando playing Mark Antony. More to come on that, but first, let's sell some fish. I'm excited about our new sponsor today. We're sponsored by a book, a wonderful collection of essays by public school teachers. People, I know a lot of you are upset about this year's election here in America. And hey, you may be upset about it in all countries. There's something going on. I don't know if it's because of rising inequality, ineffective politicians, corporate overlords. I don't know. I I don't know. We don't seem to be able to solve problems. How do we go forward? What's our relationship with society and the state? We'll talk some more about that as we talk about Julius Caesar, because those concerns are central to Shakespeare's play. In any case, in the meantime, let's think about what we can do. And here's something that you can do. Support your public school teachers. These people toil away taking care of kids, trying to get them in a position to learn, trying to teach them. They should be celebrated. They should be revered. They should be compensated adequately at a minimum. We entrust our children to them and they do a hell of a job. And guess what? The job that they do helps our society. It helps hold our society together. It helps build our society in the long term. So how about this? How about smiling a little more often when you encounter your public school teachers? How about you stop blaming them for things that are beyond their control? Emphasize to your kids how much they should appreciate their teachers. Vote for school board candidates who want what's best for the teachers. And listen to teachers who know kids and know what they need. Donate things to the classrooms if they need help. Thank them once in a while. Just that. Thank them. Or you could buy them a cup of coffee or maybe a gift. Like What Have I Learned? This book of essays, it's a great book of essays by public school teachers who have won an award. They're giving a speech looking back on the things that mattered most to them, how they came along in their journey. It's an inspiring book. Book for you to take some inspiration from as well. That's our sponsor of today's podcast. What have I learned? Available at amazon.com. It's a group of Award-winning teachers, some of the finest in the Boston area, who come from all walks of life, and they ended up as teachers. We take that for granted, that people will view teaching as a calling and, and give it their all. Well, that's not something we should assume. We don't ask that of doctors. We pay doctors well. We shouldn't just assume that, that people want to be teachers. But people do. They sign up for it. And this book, in the voice of teachers who have shown that compassion, that drive, that dedication. They've brought it out somewhere deep within them. They've brought it to bear on their task. And they come to tell us what they learned from teaching our children. It's a wonderful book. And come on, perfect for the holidays. 
right? If you know a teacher at all, it would be a perfect book for them. And even if you're not a teacher, maybe you have an interest in education. Maybe you just need an inspirational pick-me-up. Well, go get the book. What have I learned? Sponsored by the Brookline Educational Foundation. Available on Amazon. And if you're near Boston, you can go to a special reading on December 8th at 7.30 p.m. at the Brookline Booksmith, an excellent independent bookstore. Okay, is that it for the fish? I'm not really selling that fish. I'm more giving the fish away because I believe in it. Getting a little lost in the metaphor. Someday I'll explain what all this selling of fish means. How about some little fish? Minnows. Fish sticks, maybe. I'm Jack Wilson. Please subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends. Check us out at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Send an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Or follow me on Twitter at writerjack. W-R-I-T-E-R-J-A-C-K-E. Or follow our friend, our frequent guest, Mike, at literaturesc. Check out all his tweets. He's recommending a book a day for 10 years. He's early in the project. We'll see how he does. So far, the picks have been excellent. And here at the History of Literature podcast, we appreciate each and every positive review, five-star ranking on iTunes, every email, every tweet, every link, every share, every download, and above all, every listen. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So, Julius Caesar the play appears to have been written in 1599. The exact chronology of Shakespeare's plays is not entirely known or not definitively known, but it's been pieced together from letters, lists, and other contemporary sources. Scholars have placed Julius Caesar in 1599, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. The first is where it falls in Shakespeare's development as an artist and within his set of interests. 1599 means the play comes after many of his histories, after the Henry VI plays, after Richard II, after the Henry IV plays, and possibly around the same time as Henry V. It's several years before his other famous Roman plays, 
Coriolanus and Antony and Cleopatra, and it's right on the cusp of his major tragedies. It appears to have been written before Hamlet, and it was almost certainly written before Othello, Macbeth, and King Lear. So it's a Shakespeare who's written comedies and histories and some early tragedies like Romeo and Juliet, but not the major tragedies. What else is interesting about 1599? Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. She had been on the throne since 1558. Forty years. A little more. That's a long time for a government, for any government, to be in power. And there was certainly turmoil during her reign, but there was also stability. It's a backdrop worth keeping in mind as we read Julius Caesar. A long period of stability. Enough time for some complacency to set in. Some assumptions that stability is the norm. But at the same time, how much can one rest in a regime like Elizabeth's? The leader is 66 years old and she has no heir. Change might be coming. It might appear very soon. What would prevent change from being too radical? The people. That's who prevents it. And the institutions in place, in any society, I mean, the courts, the police, the church, the schools, the local officials, the professions, lawyers, merchants, and so forth. Parliament has a role in England, a big one. But all those things, the influence of those institutions are hard to define. Those are, those are elements that work invisibly. And historians can argue about them years later saying which of these prevented the revolution or which of these contributed to it. Nobody is there to see if the courts are strong in real time. You can't measure that. Institutions as a general force don't step up and assert themselves in a moment of crisis. People do. Individuals. Individuals who... Yes, might represent an institution, the church, the military, the merchant class, or who might ride in on a wave of sentiment against an institution. But it's an individual. That's who you get in moments of change or crisis. You get people. Sometimes very charismatic ones. Sometimes they're acting for good. Sometimes for evil. Often it's a mix. It's a little hard to sort out. It's a necessary evil, one might say, or a, an honorable but deeply flawed person. For all these individuals, these change agents, we can look at their means and their ends. What are they trying to accomplish? And what are they willing to do to get it done? And just as these change agents are individuals themselves, with all the human strengths and human foibles that that means, they're also appealing to individuals, to citizens, to society. Sometimes this is orderly, an election, a smooth transition. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's a mob. Sometimes leads to revolt. Okay. So that gets a lot of our themes on the table for this play. Let's tie them into the play itself. Shakespeare based his story of Julius Caesar on a book that was very popular in England at the time, Thomas North's translation of Plutarch's Lives. The story would have been well known to many in Shakespeare's audience. 
the entire story, Julius's, Julius Caesar's life. It's one of the fascinating things about Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, is that Caesar is barely in it. You might say he's the third or fourth most important character. Scholars have pointed out that actually he pervades everything. And Shakespeare alludes to this when he refers to Caesar as the North Star, the Pole Star. All the other stars and constellations wheel around him. And that's certainly true. But think about that as a choice. That's the first big choice Shakespeare made. Well, well, the second one. So the first choice is, I want to write a play about Julius Caesar. The second is, where should I begin? And where he begins is almost at the very end of Caesar's life, just before the assassination. I wondered if this might have come from Plutarch, if Plutarch might have tilted his book that way, if for whatever reason, Plutarch's life of Caesar heavily emphasized the assassination or led with the assassination, and if Shakespeare might have been following that structure, but no. Nope. There are 46 chapters in Plutarch's Life of Caesar, short chapters. Shakespeare picks up the action around chapter 41 or 42. That's where he starts. The first 40 chapters, all that life, everything Caesar has done, has already happened when our play begins. Think about what Shakespeare has turned down here. He's not showing Caesar's rise to power, Caesar's invasion of Britain, Caesar held on a ship by pirates, Caesar's family, Caesar's wives, Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon. Some of that he'll get to later in the play Antony and Cleopatra. But just think about Shakespeare here. He's not really writing about the life of Caesar. He's writing about his death, about the plot against him, and the assassination, and the aftermath. Caesar, the man, is not the focus of this play. Caesar and what he stood for is the focus. And Brutus, who has five times as many lines as Caesar does, Brutus is portrayed as an honorable assassin. And Antony is portrayed as a loyal but ambitious friend of Caesar's. They are the protagonists. That's the struggle here. So why not call the play Brutus? Or Brutus and Antony? Well, I think it's because what we said earlier, Caesar is the North Star. The others are revolving around him. Here's the lines that Caesar delivers. He says, I am constant as the Northern Star, of whose true fixed and resting quality there is no fellow in the firmament. This is interesting. And (laughs) interesting is... Such a funny and inadequate word to use. Interesting. It's so weak. It's what people say about books written that they maybe don't like all that much. So anytime I'm talking about Shakespeare and I slip and say interesting, you can substitute marvelous or stupendous or fascinating or genius because that's usually what I mean. Anyway, these lines, Shakespeare is so good at making lines burst with multiple meanings and dramatic intensity. Caesar has been warned about the Ides of March. Beware, Caesar. Beware the Ides of March. And Caesar, who believes in prophecies, has this set before him, the Ides of March. Does he listen? No. He's 
as constant as the northern star. Nothing's going to change. He believes that. And right, Elizabeth will stay on the throne forever. Continuity shall reign. It's hubris, right? The audience who knows that the Ides of March are going to be the end of Caesar, that his life will end in a bloody knifing by a group of assassins, that the Ides of March is is a time that Caesar should fear. He's not a northern star. He's a human being. He's vulnerable, very vulnerable. But there are other meanings at work in those lines as well. There's a kind of irony to this. The Republic was a northern star for nearly 500 years. For 500 years in Rome, the worst thing you could say about a politician was that he was overambitious, that he wanted to be a king. And here comes Caesar, and he ends all that. He crushes the Republic, the institutions that supported it, and bends them to his will. So yes, he's constant. He's the northern star. He's become the northern star through an enormous disruption of the established order. He overturned one paradigm and replaced it with another. He made himself the alternative to the Roman Republic. And the other the other meaning is one we've already talked about, how the rest of the world revolves around him. And it's true. We could write a play called George Bush II or Barack Obama or Donald Trump and barely touch on the actual person. A play called George Bush II could be entirely focused on the people around him, Dick Cheney, Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, Condoleezza Rice, the decision to go to Iraq, the lies that were told to pull the country into the war, the early triumph, the ugly aftermath, recriminations. That would be a fascinating play, and George Bush could be off stage for the entire thing. It would still be fascinating, and it would still be about him. All those people and an entire country, and the press, the public, and the world revolving around that figure because of where he sits and and what he represents. Let's save Donald Trump the play for a little later. We'll get back to that or something like it. Let's talk about the people revolving around Julius Caesar and the brilliance of Shakespeare in constructing these characters to set this drama in action. John Keats wrote a famous letter in which he introduced the concept of negative capability. What is negative capability? It's the capacity of a writer to pursue a vision of artistic beauty, even when it leads him or her into intellectual confusion and uncertainty as opposed to a preference for philosophical certainty over artistic beauty. Who inspired this discovery of Keats? Shakespeare. Who didn't have it? Well, Keats Keats thought Coleridge maybe didn't have it. He was younger than Coleridge and objected to Coleridge's obsession with definitions, certainty with efforts to nail things down. Here's... Keats's quote in full. He's describing an animated discussion he had with a friend, and he writes, quote, Several things dovetailed in my mind, and at once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is, 
when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. He then describes Coleridge, ruining a moment of beauty by searching for meaning, because he's, quote, incapable of remaining content with half-knowledge, end quote. Keats says, quote, with a great poet, the sense of beauty overcomes every other consideration, or rather, obliterates all consideration, end quote. And for beauty here, I think we could also say truth or life or humanity. It's the complexity that Keats is searching for, the uncertainty and the doubt. And Shakespeare, as Keats notes, is fully willing to have to live in uncertainty. He embraces it. These are not black and white heroes in the story of Julius Caesar. It would be easy to see it that way. It would be easy for a lesser writer to think, I'm going to make Brutus, the primary conspirator, ambitious or misguided. I'll make Caesar the hero, the fallen hero, and Brutus the villain, and I'll work up the audience's sympathies for Caesar. I'll talk about how tragic it is when a great leader who's beloved by his people is assassinated outside the bounds of moderation and justice. That's the truth I need to pursue here. I need to take a side. I'll come down on that side. Or... He could go another way. He could say, I'll make Caesar the villain. He's declared himself dictator. He needs to die. I'll make Brutus the hero. And I'll make the subsequent persecution of Brutus, the tragedy. And I'll write a play warning about how empire leads to mob rule and tragic injustice. I don't think Shakespeare ever thought like that. I don't think he he looked at at issues and problems and said, I need to figure out where I stand, which side to take, and promote that side. I think he jumped in and saw the question first. The question was what fascinated him. The question that he himself would need to wrestle with. That's what he wanted to explore. That's what he wanted to share. That's what he wanted to present. At the height of the Iraq War, the author Nicholson Baker wrote a book about assassinating George W. Bush. The characters consider doing it. Is assassination our duty? Ever? John Wilkes Booth certainly thought so. Horribly, tragically, for America. We were deprived of Abraham Lincoln, the greatest leader we've ever had. We lost years of his leadership. Years that might have led to healing after the Civil War. And of course, as many of you know already, John Wilkes Booth was hugely influenced by this play, Julius Caesar. After he assassinated Lincoln, he leapt from the balcony. He was in a theater. For those of you who might have forgotten or maybe live abroad, might not have learned this, Lincoln was watching a play when he was killed. John Wilkes Booth shot him in the, in the booth, and he jumped from the balcony onto the stage and shouted a Latin phrase that means, thus it ever is for tyrants. Or, some have said, the meaning of the phrase is more commonly used as death to tyrants. Now, John Wilkes Booth was from an acting family. They were famous for their renditions of Shakespeare. And in 1864, he appeared with two of his brothers, the only time the three of them appeared in the same play. 
What was the play? Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare. His brothers, one was named Edwin, the other was named Junius Brutus. Brutus. Wow. Why? He's the hero of the play. He's idealistic. As I said, his play was hugely influential on John Wilkes Booth. It was a tragedy, the Lincoln assassination. Lincoln might have been the best man, the only man in the world to heal the country. Maybe he couldn't have done it. Maybe his role in the Civil War would have prevented it. We do know that it didn't happen. It's reasonable to think that someone with Lincoln's vision and rhetorical gifts might have been in a position, might have been able to help bring it about. You know how many months after the end of the Civil War that Lincoln was killed? How many months passed after General Lee surrendered and Lincoln was assassinated? Well, I cheated. It wasn't months at all. It was days. Four days. We had Lincoln for four days after the Civil War ended. The total shame. That's a great case against assassination. Another is the backlash. Would Nicholson Baker's protagonist really end the forces that had been unleashed by George Bush? What do you do? Kill the vice president and the entire cabinet all at once? Because how do you know the replacement won't do the same thing? Or maybe do something worse? Maybe ride a crest of popular sentiment, of anger over the assassination, love for the fallen leader? Maybe the replacement is able to use that sentiment and that energy to enact even more of what you were trying to prevent. Or maybe the society falls into anarchy. How do you know that anarchy is better? How do you know that your assassination will lead to anything like the outcome that you want? Let's take another example. There's a bureaucrat in Nazi Germany, a lawyer. This is a, a true story. He was writing laws that led to the machinery of the Holocaust. Laws that would round up the Jewish people, drive them into camps that led to their awful ends. He was a war criminal, right? Evil, a monstrous person, the man who wrote those laws. And after the war, he wrote his memoirs. And he said, wait, 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 wait. I wasn't a villain. I was a hero. Everyone around me said that one drop of Jewish blood was enough for someone to be defined as a Jew, to be eligible for those camps and to be exterminated. I fought. I fought for years. I developed the rule that it should be three grandparents. If you were there in that room, you'd know what a risk I took. But I personally saved Millions of people from being on that list saved their lives. I don't know the answer to that one. That's tougher, right? I'm comfortable saying that John Wilkes Booth was a monster, a villain. I'm less comfortable saying that the doctor who treated him was a villain. And I'm even less comfortable knowing what to say about our German lawyer. What do you think of his argument? 
I've heard one critic say, stop giving yourself so much credit. You helped kill six million people. Who cares if you hypothetically saved some others? Why didn't you kill Hitler when you were in the room with him? Could have assassinated him. You could have saved a lot more than a lot more lives than you did. What do you think of that argument? Those are tough questions. But Shakespeare doesn't shrink from tough questions. He seeks them out and finds their dramatic potential and exploits it to the fullest. Let's look at an example. In case you're not familiar with the central story in Julius Caesar, it's, it's this. After hundreds of years of a republic in which power was distributed among different institutions, the Senate, the tribunes, the consuls, a system of checks and balances and more or less democratic aims and interests, Rome has gone through several internal wars. As the play begins, Caesar has arrived in Rome, a general victorious from years of battles, triumphant over his enemies, both external and internal, and he has established himself as the man in Rome, a dictator. He refuses to wear a type of a crown, even though it's offered to him three times, That was his signal that he didn't consider himself a king, but many viewed that as as phony, put on for show, just a display. Caesar always nodded to the people, to the power of the people, and to his own humility. He claims to be upholding the will of the people, a tool of their will, even as he consolidates his own power and impresses his own will upon the people. Now, All of you historians, before you send angry emails, let me say in advance that all this is is disputed by angry people claiming to know the true story about Rome and the fall of Rome, and they have reasons for why this happened or that happened, and let me just say that I'm not a historian. I'm giving people a general understanding of the background, what someone might need to know to help them understand Shakespeare's play, okay? So no angry emails. You can go listen to a history podcast on the history of Rome, which is excellent. Please don't send me your angry emails. Maybe send a few tweets to the Literature Supporters Club at Literature SC. Have your disputes with our old friend Mike. Literature SC on Twitter. Okay, so Caesar's in Rome, and anyone with eyes can see that something big has changed. The Republic is not functioning the way it once did. There's, of course, it's not. There's a dictator now. Checks and balances out the window. What's left? What's left is hoping that Caesar treats you well. Hoping that Caesar has your interest in mind. You don't have a vote anymore. You don't have a role. You don't have a, a lever of power that you can press or that you're in charge of. It's all hoping that Caesar will do what you're hoping he will do hoping that he'll do good things for the people. And a lot of formerly powerful people said, we don't want to stand here and hope. We don't want to rely on one ambitious man's goodwill. That's not the role we want to play. There's a couple of elements at play here, aren't there? One of these elements is that if you you might believe that this much power in, in the hands of any one individual is dangerous because power corrupts and it's only a matter of time before a Even a decent person like Julius Caesar might turn into a Nero. 
Maybe it will happen to Caesar himself or one of his successors. It's a dangerous way to be governed, to be hoping that each person who assumes power is going to do good things. That's one of the elements at play. It's a fear people have. And there's another powerful one, which is that powerful people don't want to bow down to a dictator. A god. He declared, Caesar declared himself a god. And there's something in people that don't like that. They say, sure, we live under a position like a council. That's held by two people for a single year. And the whole time, they're working in coordination with the Senate. Powerful people can accept being under a a consul whose power is limited, but under an all-powerful dictator, a man who's declared himself a god, that's more than some powerful people can bear. That's where the conspiracy comes from. That blend of two, people who miss the republic, people who are jealous, don't like the idea of power being held by someone else, Even those people, though, are willing to cite the Republic as their rationale. Back to Shakespeare. We see both types of character. Those who are themselves jealous and ambitious. And then there's Brutus. Beautiful Brutus. Brutus, the pure of heart, who cares only for Rome, for the Roman Republic. That's Shakespeare's masterstroke. To make Brutus a true defender of Rome. A man who loves Caesar, but feels compelled by a sense of duty to end Caesar's life. To cut down ambition. Brutus, the man who loves Caesar, but who loves Rome more. The other conspirators are different. Brutus doesn't act alone. He's part of a collection of people. The others are tend to be seen as more ambitious, jealous of Caesar's power, their motives are more mixed. And in some ways, those are the people who are more clear-sighted about what needs to be done. They say, we need to kill Caesar's friends, too. We need to kill anyone who, who might step into Caesar's role. If we're serious about this, and Brutus and Shakespeare says, no, 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 that may make sense, but it would be unjust. We can act against ambition, the man who has exercised ambition, but not against others who are merely potentially ambitious. That's not who we are. That itself would be wrong. Now, Cicero is an interesting figure. Some of you may be wondering where Cicero is in all this. Cicero is a staunch defender of the Republic. Famously so. And he's in this play, but as kind of an absent figure. He's, he doesn't have many lines. He's not in, in the key scenes. The conspirators try to persuade Brutus to enlist Cicero in the conspiracy. And Brutus says, no, Cicero won't be willing to do anything that he himself doesn't lead. Yet it, Cicero is the kind of guy, Brutus thinks, who will cover himself in glory, who won't act for a cause unless he himself is viewed as the leader of the cause. He can take some credit for it. That's dangerous too in Brutus's view because it's acting for impure reasons. And that what Brutus thought needed to be done wasn't 
wasn't about pride or glory. It was merely to benefit Rome. So there's a brutal murder, stabbing Caesar in cold blood multiple times until he bleeds to death on the floor of the Senate. Shakespeare puts this in the Senate. Actually, it it happened at a meeting with senators at another location, Pompey's Theater. It's a nice poetic touch, a brutal murder, a kind of ritual killing. The man who subverted the Senate is killed in cold blood by the senators who are defending the Republic with noble-minded Brutus taking the lead. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing about Cicero. Plutarch, Shakespeare's historical source, doesn't have Cicero as the man who can't stand to go second, the man who won't follow another man's movement. Gary Wills called this to my attention in a great little book called Rome and Rhetoric. Wills points out that Plutarch says that Brutus is the one who can't stand being second. And that would completely change Shakespeare's play. Shakespeare has a wonderful drama in place. Caesar, the charismatic but obviously ambitious man, and his friend and supporter, Antony. Antony, who we haven't talked about him much, he's a nasty piece of work himself. He's noble in some ways. The crowd at one point says, Antony, this is the noblest man in Rome. But he's nasty. Antony, we learn from Plutarch, will one day have the head of Cicero brought to him. He'll look at it and laugh. That's Antony eager for power himself, brutal, the kind of guy who will love Caesar because he loves power. And then, with Caesar out of the way, he'll grab it for himself. That's still in the future. That's a little ahead of our play, a little. Because in Shakespeare, in the heart of Julius Caesar, the play, we have this brutal murder. And then we have the real core of the play. The people of Rome gather outside the Senate. What just happened? What does it mean? What will happen next? And Brutus addresses them with the speech we heard at the outset. Brutus tells them what happened and why. Tells them that dictators cannot be tolerated in Rome. And that Caesar was a man whose ambition overreached. Therefore he slew him. And then Antony speaks. That's the heart of the play. These two orations. It's in Act 3, Scene 2. An oration by Brutus. And then an oration by Antony. And Rome hangs in the balance. Why does Rome hang in the balance? Because it's the people's reaction that matters. Their reaction to these two competing orations. Will the people side with Brutus and agree that ambition cannot be permitted to trump the Republic? Or will they side with Antony, who masterfully presents an alternative, a world where Caesar, and here Caesar is a proxy for strong leaders in general, where Caesar's more effective, more modern, more beloved, more worthy of the people's respect and obedience. That's the side that Antony suggests to the people. It's a rhetorical masterwork. Shakespeare frames it that way, and then he delivers. So let's listen. Oh, first... Let me tell you what to listen for. Antony isn't setting out to slander Brutus. He goes out of his way not to. He doesn't say, yes, Caesar was ambitious and that's what you deserve, you sheep. 
that's the best way to lead. That's the only way to rule. We should name the strongest men as our masters. Now it's my turn. No, of course not. That might be Antony's point of view. Might be what's going through his mind. But instead, he defers to Brutus's honor. Who will say that honor is bad? So instead he says it. He says it again and he says it again. And each time it starts to ring a little more hollow. Now he's also been compelled to say it because Brutus is in charge here. Brutus has got the conspirators, the men with the knives. They permit Antony to speak. So in in part he's working within that set of restrictions. Even so, he moves the people. Even so continues to say that Brutus is an honorable man until it finally, finally starts to ring hollow because does an honorable man kill someone in cold blood? Someone beloved by the people? Does an honorable man assassinate a king or a dictator? Does an honorable man go against the will of the people? Even when he's acting in their name or acting with their interests in mind? Antony is insinuating that maybe he does not. And Antony acknowledges the righteousness of Brutus's cause, ambition. Let's cut it down. It's a bad thing, ambition. But he puts seeds of doubt here, too. Was Caesar really that ambitious? Didn't he do things for the people? Didn't he refuse the crown when it was offered to him? And Antony says, Isn't it okay to mourn this man, this dead man, this once great Roman? Do we have to think about institutions at a moment like this? Antony, remember, is holding Caesar's body in his arms. He's arrived with Caesar in his arms, and he says to the people, We loved Caesar. He was a human being, a great one. What are these abstract principles that Brutus is talking about, like justice and honor and ambition and institutions? What are those compared with a living, breathing, alive genius of a man who no longer walks among us? Let's listen to Antony's oration. Marlon Brando's delivery. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears! I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it was so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here on the leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this and Caesar seem ambitious? When did the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept? Ambition, 
should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honorable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You only love him once, not without cause. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? Oh, judgment, thou art led to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar, and I must pause till it come back to me. Chilling. Don't let Antony speak. The conspirators had told Brutus, and Brutus, honorable Brutus, says, no, let's let him speak. The crowd will side with the righteousness of our cause. Let the people choose their ruler and how they're to be ruled. Even if they're about to choose tyranny. Even if, as Andrew Sullivan recently wrote about an American election, the republic is voting to repeal itself. Brutus wants to let Antony speak, and Antony shows up carrying Caesar's body, and he carries the day. Later, he has another maneuver up his sleeve. He says in the oration, he goes on to say, I can't read the will. You'll be too moved. And the people demand to hear it. And he reads the will which, in which Caesar gave his fortunes back to the people. And the people are moved. They're ashamed. This is the man who was slaughtered for his ambition. He loved us like a father. Literally like a father. The people do not return to their pre-Caesar respect for the Republic. They rise against Brutus and the conspirators. Antony calls for Octavius to help him lead the charge against Brutus, and an empire is born. We transition from Julius Caesar to Augustus Caesar, and all the emperors who would come after. The Republic becomes a memory, a part of history, clung to by only a few. Brutus didn't just kill Caesar. He killed off Rome as well. He thought the people would act differently. They did not. So fascinating. Shakespeare, writing in Elizabethan England, saw the power of this, the power of a people deciding its own fate, its own form of government, choosing between high-minded ideals and different individuals with ambition. Why do we care today? I think the answer is obvious. We have moments like these. We have elections that ask us to question our own system. What did Americans just vote for? We don't know. There's arguments. There's speculation. It's hard to know. We are surprised that people turned out in the numbers that they did for the man that they chose, a man who has said things seemingly at odds with the Constitution or all conceptions that we had of who we are, how we consent to be governed. We've seen this before in times of crisis. Lincoln himself suspended habeas corpus, the limitation of the government's ability to seize people and arrest them. Lincoln said, not now. 
not when we're fighting for our lives. The means here justify the ends. That's Lincoln, as high-minded and idealistic and stubborn a leader as you'll find, and he found it necessary to invoke an exception. What do weaker rulers do? And by weaker here, I mean more selfish, more cowardly, more nakedly ambitious, the ones who don't believe in checks and balances, who believe in winning and in using power after they've won, who believe in cutting down one's enemies and using the system, the power of the system to service their own personal greed and ambition. How do those people deal with crisis? Will they back down? Will they modestly include the other institutions in order to move forward in a principled way? Or will they see the crisis as an opportunity? Why not ignore the Congress or the Supreme Court? What's stopping a president from ignoring a Supreme Court ruling? What's stopping a president from shutting down the press? Maybe stealing an election or two, or maybe canceling elections altogether. And when that happens in this hypothetical thought experiment that follows a crisis, I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but what happens if there's a crisis, a bombing, an invasion, a foreign threat, a set of protests? What happens when power is seized and consolidated and institutions the checks and balances, when those are all subverted, what will be the response of the public? Will they fight for the institutions they once prized, insist on a, a distribution of power, or will they side with the strongman? Maybe that's who get things, gets things done. Maybe that's who can deal with the foreign threat most effectively or with the internal uprisings. Maybe that's who the people will say that they love. Maybe that's who they will trust. Maybe that will be what they want. A few days ago, I read an article in the Journal of Democracy that haunts me. It's called The Democratic Disconnect. It's by a couple of academics, Roberto Stefan Foa and Yasha Munk, two experts in social research, Democracy and institutions, examining institutions. This was an article from July 2016, and these two have been looking at indicators of democracy by comparing surveys that have been done over decades. They're taking the temperature of democracy, you might say. How committed are Americans and, and Europeans? How committed are they to liberal democracy? How much do people value one person, one vote? How much do people trust their government? or trust the political process? Do they believe in the courts? Hey, the system feels like it's rigged, if it's all corrupt, if it's all a bunch of looters, then why not have a dictator if the results are better? If your alternative is corruption and looting by a thousand politicians, and everyone is ineffective, nothing gets done, why not try a benevolent king? Maybe he can put a stop to it. That's kind of the dilemma that's lurking underneath this article in the Journal of Democracy. Where are people headed? Are people softening toward the idea of a strongman leader, an authoritarian government? 
So here's what these two measured through looking at these surveys. I have no idea if their methodology is sound. I'm sure there are people who say that they compared apples with oranges or distorted the results here and there. These studies always have critics and, and defenders. But let's accept it for now and hear what these two found. They measured the following indicators. Citizens express support for the system as a whole. The degree to which the people support key institutions of liberal democracy, such as civil rights. Third, their willingness to advance their political causes within the existing political system. And fourth, their openness to authoritarian alternatives, such as military rule. And what did they find? You should really read this essay. It should be required reading this study. What did they find? Go read the whole thing. But the summary is frightening enough. And at least for me, rings true to a certain extent, a certain alarming extent. Let me read this paragraph, which kind of summarizes their findings. They say, quote, What we find is deeply concerning. Citizens in a number of supposedly consolidated democracies in North America and Western Europe have not only grown more critical of their political leaders. Rather, they have also become more cynical about the value of democracy as a political system, less hopeful that anything they do might influence public policy, and more willing to express support for authoritarian alternatives. The crisis of democratic legitimacy extends across a much wider set of indicators than has been previously appreciated. Doesn't that ring true? Don't we know that that's how the people feel? Isn't that what we just saw in the latest election, something like this? Did we see this in Brexit as well? People are tying those two elections together. They give support for each of these findings. It's a fascinating read. And listen to this one. I'm going to jump to the fourth one. The support for authoritarian alternatives. Quote, In the past three decades, the share of U.S. citizens who think that it would be a, quote, good or, quote, very good thing for the, quote, army to rule, a patently undemocratic stance, has steadily risen. In 1995, just one in 16 respondents agreed with that position. Today, one in six agree. While those who hold this view remain in the minority, they can no longer be dismissed as a small fringe, especially since there have been similar increases in the number of those who favor a, quote, strong leader who doesn't have to bother with parliament and elections, end quote, and those who want experts rather than the government to, quote, take decisions, end quote, for the country. Nor is the United States the only country to exhibit this trend. The proportion agreeing that it would be better to have the army rule has risen in most mature democracies, including Germany, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. Why is this happening? Why? Maybe people are looking at the system as it exists and saying, hey, Washington, you idiots, you're so busy lining the pockets of your donors. You don't do anything you're supposed to do or anything you'll say you'll do. I know Democrats will point to the Republicans and say they want government to fail. That's been their stated purpose since Reagan. The government is the problem. 
Let's make government so ineffective and so despised by the people that people will want it to go away. What's going to replace it? What's going to step into that vacuum? The people who are upset about a problem, whatever the problem is, think, well, maybe maybe the military should step in and solve some of these problems. Maybe experts. Maybe we can put this in the hands of experts. Maybe that will do better than politicians. And, and that could be anything. Any of your causes on the right or the left it could be immigration. Maybe you think that's the the serious threat facing our country. You think politicians aren't able to get a wall built? If only we had a general who was willing to march down there, put the army in charge of building a wall. Maybe your issue is climate change. And you could think the same thing. We need experts. Politicians are they're, they're in bed with all the industries that don't want us to make changes. They're in bed with the coal industry and the oil industry. If only we could put some some scientists in charge, some reasonable people who could do something, right? You could have a, a favorite issue. And if you believe in it strongly enough, be honest with yourself. You wouldn't mind if, if your candidate stole an election, if it meant that your issue would finally be addressed. Would you? Where are we? Who are we? We'll have to address those questions in the future, maybe the near future. Our next crisis might show us. The last one, 9-11, showed us that we were not all that opposed to torture if we thought it would keep us safe. We've had a, a prison, an extra-legal prison, a prison designed to be outside the, the restrictions of laws. We've had that in place now through two full presidencies. We gerrymander districts. We distrust the courts. We don't really believe that elections are completely honest. We think they're rigged by the money flowing in. They're rigged by local politicians who are in charge of the mechanisms of democracy. We think they're hacked. There's something fishy about these ballot boxes. Where is this taking us? Where do we draw the lines? What do we accept? How much of this leads to our, our losing our faith in democracy? Here's what worries me. I, I was a Cold War kid. Others before me, the generations immediately before, were World War II era. Who were our enemies then? That's how people define themselves, right? They define themselves not just by their conception of who they are, but their opposition, conception of who they're not. Our enemies then in, in World War II and the Cold War, Hitler, Stalin, the Soviet Union, all authoritarian regimes, fascism. We defined ourselves by our opposition to them, hawks and doves alike. Freedom, free and fair elections, a free press functioning courts, our institutions defined us, the strength of them. Why did we deserve to win World War II and the Cold War? We told ourselves it was because we did things better over here than they did them over there. We were Athens, they were Sparta. Over there, they open your mail. They throw dissidents in the gulag. They have show trials. They 
torture. How do we define ourselves now? What do we set ourselves against? Anything? Because I don't see this. When I look around, when I read my Facebook page, are we pitted against an enemy? An authoritarian regime? Or are we just pitted against one another? Because if there's no reason to defend our institutions against an alternative system, and if the enemy is within, then the institutions are there for the taking. They're up for grabs. They're there to be used and abused to keep one side victorious and the other side at bay. And if that means we let all of the cherished forms of our liberal democracy, if we let all those things slide and go with a strong man, our strong man, so be it. That's the lesson of Rome. It's the real lesson of Shakespeare's amazing play. Let's look at the key figures of the Roman Republic's move to empire and the people and the way they responded. Not how long things endure, but how fast they can change. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature podcast. My thanks to my sponsors, Audible and the Brookline Educational Foundation. Please do check out their new book. It is a terrific read and a terrific gift. What Have I Learned? By Teachers Looking Back at a Lifetime Spent with Children. Available at Amazon.com. I'll be back next time with our episode on Bob Dylan and maybe Javier Marias next week, too. Should be good episodes. Both of them are with Mike, our old friend from the Literature Supporters Club. And we have a holiday special that Mike and I are working on. It's already in the works. A lot of good reading to do. In the meantime, why not hop on over to iTunes and leave us a good review? Or sign up to follow me at WriterJack on Twitter. Writer Jack, J A C K E, or you can follow our friend Mike's new Twitter feed at Literature SC, which of course stands for the Literature Supporters Club. Go Literature! One of our listeners emailed, admiring the idea of the club. That's right. Exactly. Go Literature! Or you can post one of our episodes on your own Facebook page or like or share one of the posts that we have there at historyofliterature.com or facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Spread the word. You must have some friends who could use a good dose of literature in their lives while they're driving to work or folding clothes or meditating over their morning coffee or tucked in bed at night under the covers listening to their old friend Jack. Man, I love this job. It's very fun. It's an honor and a privilege to be speaking in people's ears like this. Thank you for all your support. I truly appreciate it. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.